The stories of our lives make us and break us. When we hear other people's life-changing stories, we're given an intimate glimpse into the experiences that made them who they are. And when they pull back the curtain, we feel a lot less alone in the world. Welcome to the Six Minute Memoir Podcast, where guests share brave, true life tales of transformation in the space of six minutes. My name is Anne Bukma, and I'm so pleased to be your host. Becoming a mother stole my identity, says Pat Dickinson, an 84-year-old highly respected retired educator who looks back to a time in her life when postpartum depression took her to the brink of despair. She had her first suicidal thoughts. Now, 60 years later, she looks back at that trying time in her life for the lessons learned, the greatest of which was learning to have more self-compassion. I always thought motherhood would make me feel complete. Instead, it had the opposite effect. I felt incomplete. Becoming a mother stole my identity. After four years of marriage and a successful beginning teaching career supporting my husband while he completed undergrad and grad school, we decided it was time to start our family. My first son, David, was a chubby, compact baby who took 12 hours to be born, resulting in a high forceps delivery. And he continued to struggle through infancy, never feeding well, not settling into routines, taking naps only if walked or rocked. When I developed postpartum depression, I wasn't sure if it was due to these new baby challenges. The news that my brother's six-week-old son, also his firstborn, had been killed in a car accident the day before my son was born. The struggles of living on a graduate student's income or my own inadequacies. Whatever the cause, the depression eventually dissipated and my son and I formed a very strong bond. I was enjoying motherhood along with caring for other children and with part-time teaching to supplement our income. At about 18 months, David developed unexplained night disturbances, crying and screaming out for long periods. In subsequent years, these have been labeled night terrors and understood as neurological disturbances. Most children outgrow them eventually, but at that time, they were generally misunderstood as nightmares. I don't know why they were happening. I didn't know why they were happening. And I began to blame myself. I think some of the grad students in our thin walled apartment building thought we were abusing our child, mumbling things like, your kid's sick again last night? Nevertheless, I was enjoying and feeling confident about being a mother. We had another child, Stephen, less than two years later. The postpartum depression returned. And when I came home with the new baby, David seemed to have completely transformed. He was oppositional with me and lashed out at his baby brother. When my mother left after staying a few days with him, she, with us, she said, promise me that you will never leave those two children alone in a room together. The night terrors of a toddler combined with the demands of a newborn were overwhelming. David's aggressiveness extended to other children with whom he had played quite well just a few weeks before. Overcoming an earlier depression and establishing a renewed sense of competence actually interfered with being able to accept and cope with the darkness that once again came with clinical depression, the inescapable reality that you can't will yourself out of it. I had my first suicidal thoughts. 
There was minimal understanding of postpartum depression at that time, even though it is estimated that 15% of women experience it, it was not yet recognized as a condition distinctive from the much shorter and less intense baby blues experienced by approximately 80% of women. Through all of this, my husband managed to complete his PhD and get a job at McMaster University. He tried to be supportive, but he was like many other people in considering mental illness a weakness, something you could will or even pray yourself out of. He was a heavy sleeper and he was little help in dealing with either child during the night. We moved from Cleveland to Hamilton, Ontario when David was almost three and Stephen had just turned one. It would have been difficult managing this transition without having a depression and a child who was still demonstrating significant aggressiveness and night terrors. After one night of listening to many long hours of these terrors, I phoned our pediatrician and said, either we find some way to manage this or my sons will no longer have a mother to care for them. He understood the seriousness of my appeal and he connected me with appropriate professional support. Moving to Canada turned out to be a lifesaver. It took a few years for it all to happen, but we received good physical and mental health services at virtually no cost. We had moved to a neighborhood with many other young children. One of these boys also demonstrated significant issues and his mother said, what if we trade them a day at a time so that each of us will have a break from having to completely control our emotions when dealing with them? So that is what we did. And it literally saved my life and maybe David's. It would take another six minute memoir to detail all the mischief they got into on their days together. In spite of their challenges, they have both turned out well and our families have remained close friends for the past 57 years. Nobody understands a mother like another mother. And that's the good news in this story. These traumatic experiences and the excellent support I received from both friends and professionals helped me transform my identity. I was able to turn my significant challenges into opportunities. I retrained in child studies, focusing on early child development and discovered that I had a special talent for working with young children. I was able to work with parents, high school and university students with a realistic understanding of the challenges and opportunities they might experience. I would go on to do graduate work and served as a consultant on many provincial projects focused on the early years. I worked for the Ministry of Education designing a program that eventually evolved into Ontario's full day kindergarten program. My children did not have an easy childhood and I did not have an easy time as a mother. I made a lot of mistakes. With help, I learned to forgive myself for that which I either did not fully understand or did not have the resources at the time to change. Many of the expectations being placed on me or that I placed upon myself were not focused on what I needed to be. I believe that the greatest gift I have given my children is finding and embracing my identity and believing sincerely that who I am is good enough. Thank you so much, Pat, for that amazing story. 
um, you started by saying becoming a mother stole my identity. Um, you know, we have such a hallmark vision of motherhood sometimes as if it's the most natural thing in the world for all of us. And of course it isn't. Um, so I think your story tells the truth that a lot of women are nervous to admit or, or reluctant to, to share. What do you think? Hmm. Well, Hallmark Vision is a good, uh, is a good view. Uh, I, back when, when my children were small, it was, uh, it was the leave it to beaver image and the June Cleaver image of motherhood. And, uh, and we were just, we were expected to embrace marriage and motherhood as the goal in our life. And it was supposed to bring fulfillment. And of course it, it didn't um, in many cases, but as you say, that, that wasn't the view, that wasn't the fantasy that surrounded it. So we were very reluctant to, to acknowledge it. And it's ironic because we have very little training for being a parent. Um, and we certainly didn't back then. It was just assumed that you would know how to nurture and mother. And if you didn't, I was the youngest of four children, so I didn't really see anybody raise an infant or had close relatives that did that. So I didn't have any modeling. That modeling isn't always good, but at least there's a little modeling that you might be able to embrace and follow. So I didn't have that either. And so yeah, mothers are kind of thrown out there into the into the wilderness with the expectation that they'll know what to do and how to do it. And it's, it's not always the case. And you're right. Um, you, you look around and you think everybody else is fine. So, because nobody's admitting it. And so that's part of the challenge. You feel so alone. That's right. And I think that's why your story is so important for people to hear, especially women, because it makes you realize you're, you're not alone. You know, when someone else is able to share this kind of truth uh, you and I are friends and, you know, I had a difficult child too, maybe not as difficult as yours, but, you know, there were many times when I was pulling out my hair and blaming myself and, and um, you were a comfort to me because I could talk to you about that and you shared some of your experience. So I think um, what's different today than in the leave it to beaver days is that some of us are able to admit the hard truth and that yeah. is really powerful. And that's why yeah. your story is so important. Now, how old are you now, Pat? I'm 84. <laughs> 84. And one of the most active 80 women in their 80s that I know. So you have written this story, you uh, signed up for my six minute memoir workshop and wrote this story in the workshop. Um, and you know, this is story is probably more than half a century from when it began. Why write this story now? And what was the effect on you of putting it on paper? Yes, um, I Obviously, I reflected on this story a lot, and and a, a lot of I had a lot of therapy that focused on it. But I I knew somehow that I needed to to reflect on it in a more uh, methodical way, and and your course really helped with that because it 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 gave us strategies for doing that and. The timelines and the suggestion that we look at different timelines in our life and the chronological development of things was really very helpful. And uh, another part of it that uh, I found helpful was that you encourage you encourage people to think about how your experience had, had transformed you. 
And that was very helpful to me. And I think, I think that was always my goal. But, but when you sort of said that has to be a part of the six-minute memoir, you had to really concretize that and make it real. And that was, uh, that was very helpful to me. Uh, I, I'm writing it now because I'm, I'm, my son is writing his memoirs. My older son is writing his memoirs. And I thought, well, I think... Uh, he'll tell it from his perspective. And I think I, he needs to maybe hear a little bit more about my perspective, because while I've had therapy and I've talked to many mothers about this experience, I've not necessarily talked a lot to my sons about it. So I intend to share the story with them. I think the sharing it with um, the other women in the six minute memoir sessions, because it was all women, wasn't it? That yes. one was, yes. Yeah. Um, was very therapeutic uh, because people were so uh, accepting and, and appreciative of the story. So I found that very therapeutic, that part of it. Good. Interesting that your son is writing a memoir. Um, will he be talking about you? Do you know? <laughs> well, I think so. Uh, I don't know for sure. And I, and he's writing it for himself. Um, don't, I don't think, although he said he one time, he sent it to me. The only reason I know is he sent it to me and said, would anybody read this? And so that's how I've read bits and pieces of it. And uh, so it, it started because he was very interested in ancestry and in, in finding out about our whole family. And that got him interested in trying to recount chronologically the events in his life. Uh, but his memory isn't great sometimes, so <laughs> mine may not be either. <laughs> and often, you know, children uh, really have no idea what their parents are going through when they're young, you know, when kids are, you know, preschool or whatever, they really, even as middle-aged people, we don't always understand our parents' private lives and private struggles. So I think it'd be excellent for him to, to read the story of yours and it might be mm -hmm. quite illuminating. For both of them. Yeah. For both of them, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship like with them now? How old are your sons? So David just turned 60. I was 24 when he was born and my other son is 58. Uh, and so um, our relationship, I think, is, um, is as good as it can be. I, I mean, I studied early childhood, and so I believe that those very early years of development make a difference on your life trajectory. And we have a very caring relationship. Uh, we, would, we would help each other out uh, in a minute. I know I would help them. They would help me. And so uh, it's, it's uh, a very caring relationship. I wouldn't call it an intense loving relationship that you might think of between a mother and a child. And I, I think that may partly be because of, of my older son. We bonded quite well, actually, because I got over the depression. But then uh, for whatever reason, he flipped when I brought home the baby and that relationship was disturbed pretty well from then on. And that had a lot to do. I didn't write about it in the memoir, but that had a lot to do with the, the second postpartum depression because uh, that had been very important to me. A mother-child love is a very, very important bonding. And when he rejected me, <clears throat> it was devastating. So that disturbed our relationship. And then, of course, I, I had a much longer depression when uh, Stephen was an infant. The younger son was an infant. So I just wasn't there for him. And so um, that part of our relationship, I think that deep um, 
more loving kind of relationship doesn't seem to be there. Uh, I, I struggle with how much of that is because of uh, their early experiences and how much of it is maybe because um, their, their father, my first husband, modeled a very caring relationship, but not necessarily a loving relationship. So they also didn't see that modeled. So I'm not sure. That would be a whole nother six minute memoir, I think. <laughs> That's a very honest assessment. Um, and, you know, you talk about, um, you know, blaming yourself. And of course, I've done that. And every mother I know seems to do that. I rarely see men wringing their hands in mm -hmm. angst about what's going on with their kids. Um, why do you think we're so hard on ourselves and they don't tend to be? Yeah, I think it's it's cultural expectations. I think we're just socialized into it um, as the nurturers. I mean, certainly the fact that we carry the child and we nurse the child has a great deal to do with it, of that cultural expectation. And we are just, um, we immediately, blame ourselves if the child isn't doing well and um, so and feel guilty about that. I, it's changing, fortunately. I, I mean, the, all the notions about children and uh, infants and mothers comes from from psychology and that was all written by men. <laughs> it's a male dominated field. So that had a lot to do with what we've been enculturated to believe. But that's fortunately changing and fathers are taking a much greater sense of responsibility for children from infancy onwards. Mm -hmm. um, the skin to skin sort of phenomenon is as much dads and babies as mothers and babies. And so there's a, there's a change in that. And actually uh, fathers are experiencing postpartum depression too with all of this closeness and sense of responsibility and that the whole notion that they're, they're not getting a lot of sleep either. And they're wondering if they're good enough fathers and they're experiencing some of all about that same sort of thing that feeds into a postpartum depression. So mm -hmm. and they, they actually document that sometimes dad's hormonal uh, balance changes too with the birth of a child. Uh, just because you bring out those nurturing feelings that you may, maybe didn't have before. So mm -hmm. it's interesting what you say about a psychology and how it has not been kind to mothers. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I know, um, you know, at one time autism was blamed on, like, you know, the frozen mother, right? There Absolutely. were all these ideas, you know, uh, homosexuality, was, you know, well, it's the mother, not that there's, you know, I mean, everything was any kind of condition that the medical establishment sort of uh, saw as, you know, off center um, was was blamed on was blamed on the mother. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been a bit of a curse for us, I think. It's so tragic in your story when you share the news that your nephew, your six week old nephew um, died, you know, uh, just as you were having your firstborn. Um how did that play into all of this, do you think? Was that a factor in? Oh, I think it was a big factor, yes. And uh, what I didn't uh, tell in the six-minute memoir was some of my pre-thinking about the birth of those two children. And I'm not proud of this, but 
I was kind of resentful when I found out that my brother and his wife were expecting a baby at the same time as I was going to have my first baby, my big hurrah. And I, I'm, I knew those were petty and, and egotistical thoughts, but I couldn't get rid of them. My brother and I had always been quite competitive. And so then when uh, their baby was killed and he almost died as well in the accident, uh, I felt terribly guilty. And I remember holding David and, and just feeling so grateful and, and blessed to have him while I was crying from guilt and shame about, about my nephew. So yes, it was one of several stressors, uh, but it was a big stressor. Absolutely. That's so honest of you to admit, Pat. I mean, siblings do have rivalry and that's pretty normal. Yeah, well, I've never admitted it to my brother or sister-in-law, but it's been very much a part of, of how, why I felt so terribly guilty and personally guilty for that. Which likely added to the depress- depression, right? When you're feeling sure. bad about yourself, you know? For sure. Yeah, so that definitely was a factor. And, you know, admitting to feeling suicidal is very brave. Um, and, you know, many women with postpartum, um, it can often go away, but it can develop into psychosis and very, very serious uh, mental health issues. Um, uh, you know, I've known you a long time. So hearing those words was hard, you know, to imagine you being in that kind of state, but that's what postpartum depression can do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, and I think, I think my suicidal thoughts were a combination of, of just not ever wanting to wake up another day feeling full of such despair, but also really believing that my family would be better off without me. And I've since learned, and it has been demonstrated and identified that infants pretty well do best with their mother, no matter what kind of struggle she's having, that that's the best place for an infant. And that, wasn't common knowledge back then. And I really did believe that my family would, would probably be better off without me. So it was a combination of uh, reasons for feeling suicidal, I think. So since then, you've, you've learned more about postpartum depression. Uh, you know, it wasn't really until the 80s I, I discovered when I did a bit of research that people were even really talking about it. Um, what, what would you say that you've learned since about that? I, I guess this is one thing that children are better off with their mothers, even if it's not always a perfect situation. Any, any, any other insights? Um, I think that um, just recognizing that it is uh, experienced by one in seven women, they estimate, whereas the baby blues, almost all women have a bit of the baby blues and that it is, um, that it is hormonal, uh, imbalance is what happens in pregnancy and, and birth. And that's what causes the baby blues too. But for some reason, some people experience a, a much more severe form of that hormonal impact. And that's exacerbated by a number of factors. So uh, history of depression. And in my case, both my mother and my sister had depressive states. I don't know that they had postpartum necessarily, but I know they had periods of depression um, financial issues, which we had big time with my husband in graduate school, um, sort of allowed the amount of support you had. And uh, I, we had no extra money for any babysitting or care so that I could get away from the situation. 
And I didn't have family close by, so I had no support of that kind. And um, then other stressors. Uh, so for my son, my nephew's death, yes, and my son's aggressive behavior with the second child um, were all factors that just exacerbated that uh, that tendency. That and so I think it's a combination of things. And um, and so back then I received very little, very little understanding. And I didn't, it seemed to me that I was the only person in the world experiencing, there were tons of young mothers in the graduate complex we were in with, with young children. And it, everybody else just seemed blissfully happy to me. <laughs> they may not have been, but they weren't admitting it. And so I just felt terribly alone. Terribly alone. Yeah. Compare and despair. I remember doing the same thing. Like every other mother's got it figured out, but me. Yeah. But we all know that we can put on a show to the world sometimes when we're struggling. And I mean, some mothers, it is easy for some, it is easy. Um, I remember, uh, you know, um, talking to a child psychologist who said, you know, one in five kids is going to be difficult it's just that's those are the numbers and for a variety of reasons and um so i uh, one of my strategies was to gravitate to find other mothers who also had children who were somewhat challenging and i i um that really helped me you know as a strategy what what advice would you give to women now who might be experiencing what you did during that dark period i mean i know that was a long time ago but the symptoms are often are still the same. What what advice would you give to to women who are going through through that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think first of all, just get medical help um, because there is help available. Both um, there is now an understanding, so there's both medication help and there's also therapy help that uh, can deal help you deal with any stresses that are uh, adding to that problem. So recognize that it's a medical issue. It's not uh, something that you can will yourself out of it is a medical issue so you you need support you need help and and be grateful for and accept any help that you can receive because we we tend to think oh i shouldn't need that i don't need that but you do and your child does too so you you need to accept that and and yes any support group that you can find any any friend that you can find that's going to be honest and there will be more of them now. And I think there are support groups for, for women um, with, uh, with depression of various kinds. So I think finding something in that nature, I, I feel particularly sad about women that have had babies during COVID uh, because they, it was not as easy to find that support and, and that kind of um, release from their own aloneness. They were alone just by virtue of the shutdown. So I think that was particularly hard. But I think finding someone so that you don't feel alone with your problems, so that you recognize that, um, yes, it's unfortunate that you're the one in five, but there are many, many other mothers going through the same thing and that it's not something that you um, should blame yourself for, feel guilty about. About, um, but rather feel you need help and accept that help and be grateful for it. That's so true. And I think one of the great things about the digital age is it's so easy to find uh, support online. You know, yes. I'm sure yes. if you Google postpartum support, 
you know, you'll see how not alone, people can see how not alone they are, whereas you didn't have that in your day, right? Exactly. And young mothers are so good at, at accessing that. So yes, that is a blessing for sure. I love the um, brilliant idea to switch kids with your friend. <laughs> uh, you know, um, how did that, how did that sort of work and how long did that go on for? So you would take her son one day and she would take your son the next Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, and not only did we take each other's sons, she had three other children. I only had one other child. And so I said, well, this isn't fair, you know, um, I'll take I'll take all of them on one. And she said, oh, no, <laughs> you're not having all of them on your on your day on, uh, because she said the other four, my young son and her three daughters uh, were she said, they're just a blessing. They they sort of. Uh, deflate the other situation. So I don't mind having them around at all. So, so she had six on one day and I had three on the other. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it was just to, to have that relief on the day off. It was, it was not great on the days that we had them because they were a force to be reckoned with and they needed pretty constant supervision. And um, as I said in the memoir, it would take another story to tell all about what they got into. But um, it normalized things a bit too for me because I could see that the, this child had just as many issues as my son did. Uh, he was not the worst child in the world by any stretch and that helped. And most of all, uh, just to know that she cared enough about what I was going through to, to come up with um, this solution for me. And it just made me feel like somebody else understood me and cared about me. And I still feel that way about her. As I say, we've been best friends forever. So that's beautiful. And, so every yeah. other day you would have a day with no children. I would. Yes. Wow. So that yeah, gave you time to kind of recoup and yeah. you know store up your energy for what was going to happen the next, how long did that go on for? Well, we, we moved away from there when David was five we moved, um, up to water down and when David was five and Stephen was three. So it lasted for a couple of years. And, and by the time the kid, that, that time the kids were in school. So there was some break and relief uh, during the day from that as well. So. Excellent. What a great idea, Pat, mm -hmm. you know, it's so ironic that for a woman who thought she wasn't a good enough mother, uh, you went on to have an incredible stellar career in early childhood education from being a kindergarten teacher to a university professor to helping to run a university and even being an advisor to the Ontario government on early childhood literacy. And I, you know, you've got a five page resume, um, it, which includes a lifetime achievement award from the Council of Associated Primary Educators. So uh, it's just amazing to see the trajectory of your life here and how you had such a difficult time when your children were young and obviously learned a lot and brought this to your career. Um, and what a career it was. How do you think, or do you think your, this early experience with your children informed your career, um, helped you be more empathetic to other parents and teachers? How did it, how did it play out in terms of your career, do you think? Uh, yes, to both of those questions. I, I definitely, when I was um, going through it and I, we had the parent support group, I realized that my experiences had helped me be a better listener and, and I could understand 
other people's issues and, and not be judgmental at all with them. So I knew I was supportive and could do that. And I also knew that I wanted to know more about uh, child development and I wanted to know more about uh, parenting so that I could be more effective. And I, I kind of, I knew that I, um, that my children and I had had challenges. I wanted to sort of balance that out a little bit by helping others as much as possible and learning how myself to help myself a bit more because I, I learned that, um, that I was parenting the way I'd been parented and that was pretty authoritarian and that wasn't working very well. And so it wasn't working very well in dealing with the oppositional behavior of my, of my older son. So I learned to change that. Um, he, he still talks about, he can remember when it all changed. <laughs> he said, really? Yeah. He said, I used to be just angry with you because you were setting all the rules and all the consequences. And then he said, I found out I had to, to, you made me accept responsibility, more responsibility for my behavior and my consequences. He said, he didn't like it much. He found it very hard doing that. <laughs> it was much easier to blame the parent. <laughs> but isn't it great that he had that insight later on? In yeah, he remembers yeah. it. And, and another factor for me, um, which was a blessing, um, when my children were about four and six, I was asked to teach Sunday school and I was asked to teach five-year-olds. And I said, oh, no, not five-year-olds. I'm hopeless with kids that age. And they said, well, give it a try. And much surprise to me, I found out I was not, I was really good at it. And so when, and that was a blessing. And so when I decided to retrain, that was another factor in going into early childhood and child development and being able to to have an impact not only on parents and pre-parents, but also on children. And so um, it, uh, yes, it definitely informed um, the way my career unfolded. I also, um, in the therapy that I had that was helpful um, after we came to Canada, I was helped to understand that uh, the, the leave it to be the view of motherhood was not for me. And that was not my, that was not what would bring me satisfaction staying home with my children and that I needed to think about a professional career. And so that was very helpful because I was, that was the path I was headed down was just uh, to mainly be a mother at home and taking care of the children, because that was kind of the, the view of myself that had been projected onto me. So it was, the therapy was very helpful in, in changing all of that. Right. I mean, it's not for everyone. Some some exactly. women love to be home and be with their children and others really miss work. I mean, I felt really torn myself when I was, you know, working and, and managing young children, but I think my work often saved me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Sunday school, Pat, because we both go to the Unitarian Church in Hamilton. And the very mm -hmm. first time I met you, which was almost 20 years ago, Wow. You were teaching Sunday school and my daughter was in it. They both were. And um, I was like, who is this lady playing the ukulele? Uh, you were playing the ukulele. And um, I, I was so inspired that I eventually got a ukulele myself. And yes. I was always impressed with you right from the beginning, Pat. And you are such a vital woman. And here you are at 83, still making a difference and having an impact by, by sharing this really powerful story. And I, I want to thank you so much for your bravery and your honesty and, um, and just, yeah, for chatting with me today. I so appreciate it. Well, thank you for that. And it's been, our friendship has been very important to me. 
My name is Anne Bookma. I help people craft their own true life tales in my online six minute memoir writing workshops and with one-on-one -on -one coaching. Check out my website, annbookma.com, that's bookma with one O, to learn more. And now I'll sign off with my favorite quote about telling stories from Ojibwe author and journalist, Richard Wegemies. All that we are is story, he writes. From the moment we are born to the time we continue on our spirit journey, we are involved in the creation of the story of our time here. It's what we arrive with. It's all we leave behind. We are not the things we accumulate. We are not the things we deem important. We are story. All of us.